whole crew. Um, since I was here last, um, the Lord called me and Jennifer to become a foster family. And uh, this past January, a little one-year-old uh, boy, Noah, came into our home, and we had the opportunity to adopt him in September. So now uh, Tim and Noah are little brothers, causing havoc and chaos in our home, as little boys tend to do, as I'm learning, uh, completely different than the three girls that uh, we've raised before them. Uh, but the five of us all together are having a lot of fun, and Noah's a ton of fun. Hopefully uh, they can come with me uh, uh, one time whenever I'm back here again. Uh, he'll turn two in January, Tim will turn four in, in April, and, and we're just in for the ride of our life. Um, we, um, we continued as a foster family, and we actually had a newborn come into our home this past Monday, a little girl. Uh, so you can pray for my wife right now. <laughs> She's, we're staying home right now because uh, of all the sickness that's out there, keeping her safe. Uh, but pray for her as well, that uh, she would get healthy, and uh, as well as her mom, that her mom would get healthy. It looks like she's going to be with us three to six months, and we certainly want the mom to get to a healthy place to be able to raise this beautiful little girl. And uh, the adventure continues for the Hawthorne family. Uh, I've also enjoyed getting to know Ryan. I've known him the last few years, but even more the last uh, several months. I've me and him meet every month uh, since Mike left, and uh, uh, God's just gave me a great opportunity to invest in Ryan, to love Ryan, and he's an encouragement to me as well. And uh, ask questions and, and think about uh, solutions or direction as he moves forward as a pastor and uh, this church. And I love how much he loves Jesus. I love the work that the Lord's done in his heart to love preaching the word and teaching the word. He, I love how much he loves you guys and loves being your pastor. And uh, he really, uh, everything in him is invested in this church being as healthy and uh, making as much of Jesus as you possibly can for as long as the Lord allows him to be your pastor. And so I'm grateful to see a young guy experience that. Uh, what what uh, you, uh, things are also going well with our church uh, plant in Monroe. Uh, we now meet downtown Monroe in the palace on Sunday mornings. We moved from our, our old location that was way out in Lakeshore. Now we're more centralized, a bigger location, more parking. And God's been gracious to continue to grow us. Uh, what we've experienced... Um, what you guys have experienced with Mike and Ryan is something we've experienced, seeing younger guys uh, called, raised up to become leaders in the church, pastors, even future church planters. And so uh, that, that allows me these opportunities because I don't preach every Sunday. And we have other guys who, who spend uh, about half the Sundays of the year preaching. I preach the other half. And I can come and spend time in churches like All's Chapel uh, to encourage you to fill in for your pastor, to uh, proclaim this this mission of God, this gospel centrality that we want to see in more and more churches. And, and guys, it goes really beyond that. If I, we can do more than just preach a sermon, if we can come alongside you and help you in any way as a church to be even healthier than you already are, to be even more engaged in mission than you already are, uh, that's what we want to see happen in our church and your church and as many churches as possible because uh, our culture is lost and our culture is uh, breaking down at seemingly more and more by the, the, the week. And we need more and more of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives, change minds, change hearts, to get us healthier as a community. The gospel has changed us. The gospel is changing us. And that changes everything about how we live life. And this gospel work of, is, is God's work in us, through us. And we're simply joining God in this work in our lives and through our lives to others. And so I want to see that emerge from the text this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Uh, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Father, I am grateful for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to my brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would do deep, good gospel work in our hearts and lives, that our affections for Jesus would grow this morning, our hatred of sin would grow this morning, our love for each other would grow this morning as we come face to face with who you are and what you have done through your son Jesus. Bless this time. Speak to us through your word. May you get all the glory in what happens. And if anyone here has not come alive in Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. So, so the Crossing Church that, um, um, that I'm a part of is a church comprised of what we call gospel-centered missional communities. Missional communities are what we believe, and other churches that are part of a network called Soma Family of Churches believe, is the best vehicle to organize as a local church to see discipleship happen in the everyday stuff of life. The church was told by Jesus in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. And the only verb in that great commission is make disciples. The rest of them are participles that modify or are directed by the verb. As you go, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So we go into all nations, not geopolitical uh, locations on a map, like we think of the United Nations, but nations, ethnos in the Greek, literally people groups. We go to all ethnic people groups, all nations, proclaiming this gospel to make disciples, to baptize them so they'll identify with Christ, and to teach them to observe everything Jesus has commanded them, teach them all the scriptures so they can obey and follow and love Jesus. And this command to make disciples is something he's given to every church. Jesus didn't say, go and just have services. Jesus didn't say, go and just build buildings. He didn't say, go and make budgets. He didn't say, just go and form committees and ministries. He said, go and make disciples. Now, nothing wrong with those things that churches commonly do if those things are helping us make disciples. But the the danger for churches today in the organized church of America is you can do all those things and not be making disciples. And be very busy as a church. But are you making disciples? It's something every pastor, every church has to examine. Discipleship also isn't just something that happens in a classroom. It's not just information transfer, but something that happens in all of life. And so when confronted with this calling and command to go and make disciples, and then you observe how Jesus did that through specific times of instruction, yes, you have Sermon on the Mount, you have the parables, you have things he actually taught, but also through spontaneous interactions as he shared life with his disciples, we and other churches like us feel the best way to organize to see that happen in the local churches through something we call missional community. So we, we gather like this on Sunday morning, like every other church in the South does and, and around the world on the Lord's Day to worship corporately as one body. And then everything else we do happens through our, our missional communities. The name isn't as important as who we are in Christ and what we do. And we think it's the best way to see discipleship happen in the everyday stuff of life. Just an example for you from this past week. Uh, our missional community usually gathers on Sunday night for a, a meal, a family meal we call. And uh, we had an older couple. Now, older in our church is a, a couple in their late 50s. Uh, an older couple who uh, uh, the wife was uh, sick. And uh, we thought, what a great way to love this couple. They don't have any kids at home anymore. They're all grown and gone. And then by bringing some meals. Put these meals in your freezer and it'll help you out with the cooking. Even though he does the cooking, we just thought it'd be a way to share the burden with him. Well, 
he, he was a little taken aback by that. He was like, I can cook. I don't need meals. This is a waste of resources. I don't even like this food. Why did you bring these? You know, he was kind of fussy. And his wife, who was a preacher's kid, knew immediately, this is not how you respond when people bring you meals. So uh, we, my wife and I happened to be eating supper with them Friday night at their house. And it came up in conversation. And she had kind of been riding him pretty good all week. Like, uh, you, you still want to go to church with those people that you hate and the food that you hate? And she just kind of picking on him, but kind of driving home the point. We were able to have a, not a hard conversation, but a lighthearted conversation about pride and you know, letting people love you and not being so uh, hard and pushing back on people who are trying to love you. College students are, are, they don't got no money and they're buying frozen lasagnas and letting you put it in their, the freezer. I mean, that's incredibly a, a gift of love from a college student. And, and he realized he was wrong and he was repentant and, and, and so discipleship happening in his life, and it had nothing to do with the context of a Sunday morning gathering. It happened in a, in a family meal in a home, and two couples having supper around a table on Friday night. But that's how discipleship happens in everyday life. Uh, as you go, Jesus did this with his disciples. As we go as a people of God, we do this with each other. And we say that our missional communities are gospel-centered, which means we see the reality of the gospel, who Christ is and what Christ has done, driving and shaping, first, who we are, and second, what we do. And being gospel-centered, of course, means you've got to know the gospel. What, well, what is the gospel? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one of the clearest pictures of the totality of the gospel in all of Scripture, and it's really important in our day when we don't always have a clear understanding of what the gospel is and isn't. You see, our culture is filled not just with false gospels that you, you hear us railing against all the time, the prosperity gospel and things like that as pastors, but it's filled with people for whom the gospel is either meaningless or misplaced. The gospel is meaningless to those who are living in open, unrepentant sin, running far away from God. But if you were to ask them, if you are a believer, are you a Christian? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you saved? In this context, the Bible Belt South, 99% of the people would say, well, of course I do. Of course I'm a Christian. Everyone has been to a vacation Bible school or been to a revival meeting or been to a church service. Everyone has heard the gospel and made a decision for Christ or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or filled out a card or been baptized or at some point in their life they joined a church and they've all had this experience that to them, no matter how they live their life, this experience that they've had in their past means I'm a Christian. They have their ticket punched to heaven. They have their fire insurance. They are saved. And regardless of how they live, they have this assurance that they are in. And to them, the gospel is meaningless because it's not impacting how they live every single day. And our culture is filled with people who've had those experiences, maybe some here this morning. But we also have those in our culture for whom the gospel is misplaced. Well, I go to church. I teach Sunday school. I give to the offering. I work hard at my job. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal from anyone. I'm nice to most people. I don't watch rated R movies. I don't drink. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I give generous tips to the waitresses. I'm nice to the checkout people at Walmart. I have a few kids I sponsor through Compassion. I foster. I adopt. I vote conservative. Uh, I love my dog. I love my cat. If it's possible to love a cat, I exercise. I eat right. I'm disciplined in my life. Whatever is on your list of a good life, this is what makes someone righteous. This is what earns or keeps God's favor to you. Whatever is on your list, if those, those are the things that you are basing, you're standing before God in, 
then you've misplaced the gospel. Because you've made it all about you and what you do instead of about Christ. Who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so what is the gospel? Now, if you're automatically like, oh, we already know this. Why are you going over the gospel? That's elementary. That's for the beginner Christians. We're much more complicated and much more sophisticated. We need deep theological truths on Sunday morning. If that's your uh, uh, attitude toward the gospel, I would really encourage you not to tune me out because that may be evidence that you don't get the gospel. If you think the gospel is about getting into Christianity and then you move on to more complicated things, you don't get the gospel. If you think the gospel is only about where you go when you die and not how you live until you die, You don't get the gospel. It's so much more than just becoming a Christian or where you go when you die. The gospel is this big, amazing story that begins with God, not us. begins with God. God, who's always existed, never created, calls everything into existence with His words. God, who's always existed in perfect community and harmony as Father, Son, and Spirit, not lacking or needing of anything but choosing to create out of his sovereign power and sovereign will just because he chose to, just because through creation he would receive more honor and glory and worship and adoration. God created, called all things into existence from nothing, spoke everything into being, the planets, the suns, the moons, the stars, the galaxies, the universe, the solar systems, the big things that we think of when we think of creation, all the way down to the small things, even things like mosquitoes and snakes and lice and bugs and ants and people and animals that fly and grass that grows and, 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 de- and animals that we eat and, and everything, fall foliage, all created by God. Not just power and majesty, but beautiful. Things that taste good. Things that look pretty. Things that sound beautiful. All from God. All because He chose to. All because He wanted to display His glory to as many people as possible. And God created us, the pinnacle of creation, to rule with Him. To rule for Him. To have dominion over creation. He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy everything I've created. And and spread throughout the earth so that you, human beings, the only part of creation that was created in the image of God, you, human beings, would be image bearers. Wherever you were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth, the image of God would be seen, and all of creation would know who is the king, who rules, who reigns. It's our God. And you know the story from Genesis 3 that our parents in the garden failed, just like we would have done if we were there, and brought sin and the curse of sin into all of creation so that all of our relationships, all of our work, everything... Everything uh, uh, that exists in creation is infected with the curse of sin. We are born in this condition, as Paul described there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, infected with the curse of sin, born dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, all of us. And God, because He is holy, just, and righteous, could have left us in that state of condemnation. The angels rebelled against God, and God cast them out of heaven. There's no redemption plan for the angels. There could have been no redemption plan for humanity when we rebelled against God. But that is not the story that God wanted to write. 
All of humanity is born in this state of spiritual deadness, not seeking God, not loving God. This is the story of Rosario Butterfield. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, in her words, she was a leftist lesbian university professor who thought Christians and their God, Jesus, were stupid, pointless, and menacing. She was filled with hatred toward them. There was nothing in Rosario's life but spiritual death, nothing seeking Jesus. But, as you'll find out, he sought her. And she experienced what Paul would describe in this next section, not just the wrath and condemnation of God that we rightly deserve, but also the fact that God is loving, gracious, and merciful. Beginning in verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the gospel is not God saves the, the good people and sends the bad people to hell. The gospel is we're all bad. And there's only one who's good, and it's God. The gospel is we're only deserving of His wrath and condemnation. And the fact that God would save any single person from their sins is incredibly gracious on God's part when all we deserve is hell. That God chooses to save and redeem and forgive and adopt and make us, His enemies, sinful humanity, part of His family through His Son, Jesus. God sending His only Son from heaven to earth where He lived among us and lived the perfect righteous life that we fail at every day. And at the end of his life, he doesn't get the worship and adoration of creation. He gets a cross. Not because of any sin he committed, but because of our sins. He's punished for us. And what happens through the gospel is this great exchange. Our sins are laid on Jesus on the cross, and we get credit for his righteousness. It's not just that we are forgiven. That is amazing in and of itself that God would cast our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that He would wipe our slate clean, forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. That is incredibly amazing. But we get credit for Jesus' righteous life so that through the gospel, through Jesus, how God the Father feels about the Son, Jesus, is how He feels about us who are in Christ. As the Father says about the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, it's how He says about us who are in Christ. Because in the accounting of God, and the economy of God, and the record-keeping of God, He looks at our name, and He sees the record of Jesus for us. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is why it's good news. This is what gives us security in the eyes of our Father in Heaven. This imputed righteousness that, that for instance, 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. That's redemption. And this 
has been going on and will continue to go on as part of his family. And we are now part of God's redemptive plan. As we live out the reality of the gospel, we speak the truth of the gospel, the gospel spreads through God's people to other people far from God. And this will continue as we make disciples in all nations until one day Jesus returns and makes all things new. What a day it will be. What a glorious day it will be when he comes back and all things are made new. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more divorce, no more separation, no more goodbyes, no more sin, no more suffering, no more oppression, no more victims. It's all gone forever, never to return. And this is the day we long for, the eternal state where new creation, new earth will gloriously be brought into existence. You, you can look at the gospel in four words. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's kind of what I just walked through. And it is this big story that God's been doing from all eternity past to all eternity future that encompasses all of creation. Yes, but it's also this big story that is very personal because it has to be experienced by you individually. Just because your parents or grandparents or pastor or friend have experienced this gospel doesn't mean you've experienced this gospel. It has to be something you experience as you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And that's what we call knowing the gospel. It's not just intellectually passing a theological test. It's experientially. Are you in Christ? Do you know Christ? So I could sum it up like this. To know the gospel is to be focused all the time more and more on who Christ is and what Christ has done than on what you do. We have this tendency to beat ourselves up when we sin. And we lose sight of the fact that Jesus has paid it all for our sins and made us a new person. And we have a tendency to puff out our chest when we do things right. And we lose sight of the fact that the only reason we do anything good is because of God's grace. And we take no credit and can boast in nothing except for Jesus. Everything good that we can possibly do is only because God has graciously gifted us, created us, sustained us, and allowed us to do it. That's it. There will be no one puffing out their chest and pounding their chest in the presence of God. No one. We will all be on our face worshiping Him. Because all the good that we're able to do is because of Him. And all the bad that we've done is erased by Him. This is good news. This keeps us humble when we tend to be boastful because we realize we don't deserve it all. All we deserve is hell, yet Jesus willingly, graciously loved us and saved us. But this also keeps us from digging holes of despair because, because of our sins when we realize that at our worst, Jesus lovingly, willingly came after us. And so where does that leave us? When we, have, when we understand and we've experienced this incredible reality of the gospel, what do we do with that? I mean, there's this great thing waiting for us when we die or when Jesus returns, but we have so many days, weeks, months, or years until then. So what do we do now because of that? Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, why do we do what we do as Christians? Is Christian life simply living out the golden rule? Treat people the way you want to be treated. Well, that's good motivation, but that's not necessarily gospel motivation. That tells us more 
how we treat people, but it didn't really tell us why we treat people. Because what can happen if your life is simply living out the golden rule, it, it can become very self-serving. I treat people good because I want to be treated good. It's almost like this karma life. I do good things for people with the hopes that they'll do good back toward me. Do we just do what we do as Christians? Because if we don't, God will strike us down. He's the great policeman in the sky, always on duty, looking for us to mess up and write us a ticket or send us to spiritual jail or whatever. Well, we should live with some fear of a holy God, but that's not all God is. He's also our Father, and we know Him as Father. And when we, the more we know Him as Father, when we sin, we don't hide in fear and shame. We actually run to Him, not away from Him, for cleansing and restoration. Because we know He's a good Father who always loves His kids and takes care of His kids. And we always belong in the presence of our Father because of Jesus. So there's no reason to hide from our Father but to run to Him. I've messed up, Dad. I've blown it again, Dad. Will you help me do better next time? Will you help me walk in a better way? Will you help me not be weighed down by despair and shame because I've messed up again? Will you help me reconcile my relationships because I've sinned against people that I love? This is who our Father in Heaven is. So we don't look at Him as a, a policeman in the sky. Do we do what we do simply because the Bible says do it and we do it? But we're just obeying a bunch of rules like a bunch of robots. Well, again, we should obey the commands of the Bible, but if we only do it out of duty, then our sole motivation, if duty is our sole motivation, is what happens is we create our own list of commands that we follow and feel good about ourselves while ignoring other commands. So we become little Pharisees. This is how someone can appear very righteous. They go to church, they give money, they follow the rules of society, but in their hearts they hate people or they refuse to forgive someone who's wronged them or they look down on others who don't follow their list of rules and don't check all the boxes. So what is gospel motivation? Why do we do what we do? If our sole motivation is not the golden rule, fear of God or law of God, what should our motivation be? Well, gospel-centered motivation is living in loving gratitude in response to who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Living in loving gratitude in response to the gospel, essentially, and how the gospel has changed us. It's constantly living with the reality of Christ driving everything you do. You see it here in verse 10, where it says, For we are His workmanship, in light of, in other words. Romans 12.1, after Paul has laid out the gospel for 11 chapters, and even Paul, one of the most intelligent men who's ever lived, gets to the end of chapter 11, and he's like, his wisdom is unsearchable. I've written things that I don't even fully understand, guys. He follows up with verse 1 of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of everything I've written in Romans 1 through 11, what do we do in response? Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. We do what we do as Christians, not out of fear, not for things to go well for us, not out of dry, joyless duty, not to try and earn salvation or keep salvation. We do what we do as Christians because of who Christ is and what Christ has done and out of our loving gratitude for us being able to experience this by His grace. What does that look like? Well, one way to think about it is to think about our relationship with Christ like marriage. The Bible does this for us. So 2 Corinthians 11, 1-3 says... Paul's writing to the Corinthians, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 
Now this piggybacks on Old Testament imagery that often shows God's relationship to Israel as a husband and wife, so we understand this. So if you think about our relationship with God like a marriage, well, we understand in marriage, if you do it in a way that honors God, there are certain actions that you don't do until you're in the marriage relationship. So until marriage happens, there's no physical intimacy, which covers a wide range of intimate acts that should be preserved for marriage. You also don't live together until you're actually married. No one changes their last name until you're actually married. You don't wear wedding rings. You don't usually share checking accounts until you're actually married. You don't fight over whose turn it is to replace the toilet paper, or who takes out the trash, or who cleans the kitchen, or who holds a remote, or who cleans up the kid's vomit. All of those fun things don't happen until you're actually married, in the marriage relationship. But the acts, or the task of marriage, don't happen until the reality of marriage happens. And then all of those things happen because of the relationship. Jesus calls us to be in a relationship with Him through salvation, being born again, made alive in Christ. Then we carry out the task of that relationship. But just as in marriage, that that doesn't happen until you have a new identity as a married couple, so it is until you have a new identity in Christ. We have this new relationship with Jesus based on the work of Jesus, and therefore we have a new identity with in Christ based on the work of Christ, and everything flows from that new identity. So based on who Christ is, what Christ has done, your identity is first and foremost in Christ. The fact that you were born dead in your sins and trespasses, but Christ has made you alive, adopted you into the family of God, made you a co-heir with Christ, a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador of Christ, a citizen of heaven, part of the royal priesthood, holy, blameless, and on and on I could go. None of those things change about you and me based on your performance, because it all came into existence based on the performance of Christ. And as long as Christ and His work is complete, and it is, He said, it is finished, nothing else to do, then that identity that we have because of Christ never changes, ever, ever. You on your best day, those days where you actually wake up Happy, drinking coffee, reading your Bible, praying for people, being nice to your spouse or your kids, your pets, excited to go to work, excited to engage with people. Whatever you are on your best day, you can think about what that looks like in your life. You on your best day does not change who you are in Christ. It does not make God more pleased with you or love you any more than He already does. Again, because your standing before God is rooted in who Christ is, what Christ has done. Which also means that you on your worst day, I'm not going to start naming stuff, because it's bad, right? You on your worst day doesn't change who you are, Christ. Because again, it's based on His performance and His work. This is good news. Your best day doesn't change who you are in Christ, neither does your worst day, because who you are in Christ is based on Christ. That's the gospel. If Christ does all the work on our behalf, and by God's grace we get to share in the work, the gospel is not performance-based Christianity, at least not our performance, but His performance. And we know how well He did everything He did. Perfectly. Perfectly. And you begin to see how this frees you up. So, so I coached my older daughter's volleyball team this past year. 
I just finished the season last week. And it was fun. Love coaching. Love volleyball. My daughters have played for, for many years now. And uh, this is the first year I had the opportunity to coach them. And, man, you work them hard in practice, and you're drilling them. They're doing stuff at home, and they go to play these games. And they get so nervous. Teenage girls get so nervous before playing a volleyball game. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm like, I wish I could play. But they won't let old men play with teenage girls in volleyball. And so uh, we would talk to them before the game. Like, you've done everything in practice we've asked you to do. You've worked hard. You're in shape. You're, you're ready for this game. And then we would tell them something like this. I'd say it to my daughters. I'd say it to all the whole team. Nothing that really matters changes because of how you go play this volleyball game. You can have your best game you've ever had. You can have the worst game you've ever had. But the things that matter the most don't change because of what you're about to do. Your parents will still love you. And if they don't, then let me talk to them. Your coach, coaches love you. Who you are in Christ doesn't change. And so the things that matter the most won't change because of how you play. Now, go play. Be free. Run like crazy. Slide like crazy. Uh, uh, slide on the ground like crazy. Jump like crazy. Serve like crazy. Hit like crazy. Block like crazy. Give everything you have to play the game to the best of your ability for the glory of Christ because you know the things that matter most are because of Him and don't change because of Him. That sets you free as a volleyball player. Moms, enjoy being a mom. Delight in being a mom, knowing that on your good days or your bad days, the performance of your children don't change who you are in Christ. doesn't change His love for you. Because the love He has for you is not based on your performance or on the performance of your kids, but it's based on the performance of Christ. That's good news. If it's based on our performance, it's not good news. It's bondage. Because we fail all the time and we never measure up. Same for men, dads, husbands. You have an identity in Jesus Christ that doesn't change based on your success or failure in your job. Or even your success and failure as a dad or a husband. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no self-exaltation. But there is humble, joyful, glad, grateful obedience to Jesus. Not trying to earn something or keep something or prove something, but simply because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. The gospel kills the comparison traps that we fall into. As you scroll through Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or social media, and you see the post of everyone's perfect life, because we only choose to post our perfect lives, not the ugly part of our lives, right? And we tend to be filled with envy or jealousy. Like the science is in, the studies have been done. Just saw a, a recent one this past week. The more social media a person engages in, the more likely they are to be depressed. Why? Because you are getting killed by comparison. And you are losing your contentment. Comparison kills contentment. And it's happening to people more and more in our culture because more and more people are just doing this and just turning green with envy. The gospel sets you free from that. Because you learn to be content in all circumstances and whatever life situation you are in, and we don't live with envy or jealousy when we look at the lives of others. So we can actually be on social media and it not be a cancer for our soul. The gospel gives your parenting purpose. The purpose of your parenting moms and dads isn't to tie your identity into the success of your kids. So you're a success when your kids achieve and you're a failure when they fall short. So you don't put on your kids ungodly pressure. They have to justify who you are as a parent based on their achievements. And when they fail, you're embarrassed and you have to save face. That's not their purpose. That's not your purpose. God's given them to you 
to let the, not, not let the world know how amazing and awesome you are as a parent, but to let the world know how amazing and awesome God is. Because you raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You raise them up to know Jesus and love Jesus. You raise them up to see their sins, repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus. And you only have this short time that they're in your life. And then you shoot them into the world like a bunch of arrows to go make an impact for Jesus wherever in the world Jesus sends them, whether it's far away or close at home. And, and, and then it's up to them and Jesus. You've done your part. But they're not yours, they're His. And He loves those kids way more than you and I will ever love them. He cares and desires more for those kids way more than you and I will ever care and desire for them. So we just do our part for a short period of time and then we turn them loose to make an impact for Christ in the world. The gospel changes how you see people. So a trip to the grocery store isn't just to buy stuff, but you're praying for gospel conversations with anyone you may run into or meet. A membership in the gym isn't just working out, but who I can get to know, build a relationship with and get to the gospel with. Kids playing on ball teams isn't for your kid to become a professional athlete, which isn't likely, but building relationships with parents to get into gospel conversations. Work isn't just a paycheck, but again, your mission field. And taking the gospel into the world isn't just the job of your pastor or missionaries, but the job of every minister, every missionary, every ambassador for Christ, which just so happens to be every single Christian sitting in this room. Do you see yourself as a missionary? If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are. In every single place God has you, in every single relationship you have, is gospel opportunities, is your mission field. I wish that I used to have this happen all the time when I pastored traditional or, or, or other churches, churches in the past. And people would say, can you please come over and share the gospel with so-and-so? And, you know, being a young pastor, wanting to be a good pastor, loving my people. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to share the gospel. love to meet people, talk to people. I'd be glad to. And I did that for several years before I realized I am doing not just my church member a disservice. I'm doing this person a disservice. Because I'm coming to this person's house and meeting them one time, sharing the gospel one time. This church member who needs to learn how to share the gospel is in this person's life all the time. If I can train this church member to how to share the gospel in everyday conversations of life, then this person is going to hear the gospel a bunch instead of just one time. And I began to change that. Can you go share the gospel with my my aunt? Uh, I'll go with you, and I'll help you share the gospel with your aunt. Oh, I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know that everything you need to know Christ has given you to be able to share the gospel with your the people that you love? Let's, let's have that conversation first, and now let's go share the gospel with your aunt. And, and what happens is the ministry starts to multiply as more and more people are doing that. More and more people are engaged in mission, and more and more people are hearing the gospel. How will you be intentional and strategic to reach the mission fields God has put you in? Your home, your neighborhood, your schools, your ball teams, your job, your community, the places you eat, play, work, to the ends of the earth. I mentioned the story of the unlikely conversation of uh, conversion of Rosario Butterfield. She was a leftist lesbian professor who hated Christians. Let me, let me share the other side of the story. So angry at Christians when a Promise Keepers movement, if y'all remember in the 90s, some of, some of y'all remember the Promise Keepers movement. There were groups of men meeting in stadiums and arenas all over the country, and God was doing amazing work through these men, helping them be better husbands and fathers and employers and employees. And it was going all over the country like crazy. Well, when this group was coming to, to Syracuse, New York, where she lived, 
She heard about it, and she wrote a letter to her local paper just spewing hatred. I don't like these men. I don't like what they stand for. This is not helpful for society. Hate, 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 hate. Well, many people wrote letters to the editor telling her what a terrible person she was for attacking Christianity, which is exactly the response that she expected. One man, Ken Smith, pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, he wrote her and asked her questions about how she came to her conclusions, how she believed what she believed, and why she believed what she believed. He graciously asked her to defend her belief system, which no one had ever done. She was so taken aback, she immediately threw the letter in the garbage, and it just it wouldn't leave her. So she picked it up, and she just looked at it for a week, just kept coming back to it. Eventually, she wrote him back, and they began a two-year relationship with Ken and his wife that, in her words, brought the church to her a heathen. They began to love her, not mock her. They began to ask her questions and encourage her to ask questions. They encouraged her to read the Bible, and she began to slowly but surely come face to face with the reality that she was a sinner who needed a Savior. After about two years, two years, guys, it doesn't always happen fast. It's not always share the gospel once. It didn't happen. Forget them. You keep sharing the gospel. You keep inviting them into your life. Two years. Rosario finally bowed before King Jesus and came alive. Today she is a one-time leftist lesbian professor, lives in North Carolina, where her husband pastors a Presbyterian church, and she continues to write books that are a blessing to the church. Her most recent book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is all about how we use the gift of hospitality to love people with the love of Jesus and see them come alive in Him, which was her experience. You see, it was Jesus coming after Rosario. It was Jesus calling and commissioning Ken Smith and his wife to carry his love and truth to her. Jesus calls us as his disciples to go out and do his work, to be used by him, to call others to be his disciples. And we carry out the work that he's prepared beforehand that we should do. What would it look like for people to be so overwhelmed and amazed and changed by the gospel so secure in who they are in Christ that together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, you give your lives away away to saturate your community with the gospel. By God's grace, we can find out. That's why we're alive. That's why we're here. That's why God created us. Father, I'm so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've sung about, that we have seen in the scriptures, that we have read in other scriptures like Revelation 4 and 5. I am so thankful when the angel called out, who would open the scroll? That no human being could step forward and be found worthy, but Jesus was and is. I'm so thankful that your plan of redemption was successful, and we are gathered here today to worship King Jesus. And I'm thankful that we are still alive and we have years left to live because there are so many others in our community and to the ends of the earth who still don't know Jesus. And you have a plan. And we are part of that plan to take the gospel to them. And so I pray, Father, that you would would allow the gospel this morning, the good news of Jesus, to settle deeply in our hearts to create worship for Him in us, to create devotion to Him, to create people who are engaged in life and mission with Him. And then that you, by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, would send us out this week, today, 
as we gather with family, as we live life with friends and our communities and our jobs and our uh, places we eat and play, we would live with the radar on looking for opportunities to share the good news of Christ, that you would help us to see who needs Jesus. And we would open our mouths in boldness and we would speak the gospel to as many people as possible. Jesus, come. Come and do that through Alts Chapel. Do that through the Crossing Church. Do that through all the churches that are in our communities. For the glory of Christ alone, we pray. Amen.